welcome back to another episode of the Evidence-Based Education Podcast. My name is Jamie and this is the second episode in a mini-series on teacher collaboration. We're following the journey of colleagues from the Dulwich College International Group of Schools as they seek to enhance school-to-school collaboration through a new collaboration network. We're following them through the process and experience as well as dropping in to offer some food for thought and some advice along the way. In this episode, we speak to John Hattie on the subject of collective teacher efficacy. And then I also speak to Dylan William and I ask him about collective teacher efficacy and what his thoughts on it, as well as getting some, um, I would say, some words of caution and some advice on the topic of collaboration from Dylan. But first, I'm going to catch up with colleagues from DCI to hear what they have been up to since we last spoke to them. Hi, Sean. Hi, Jamie. So last time we spoke, Sean, you had just launched the Collaboration Network, which, if I remember correctly, is around 50 specialist groups working across, was it seven, nine schools? Nine schools. Nine schools. And the idea being to create a better connection between colleagues with similar roles and for those people to identify how they could best spend their time working together to tackle challenges in their specialist area. Is that about right? It is. Okay, good. And the first meetings have since taken place and we're going to speak to the collaboration leads, Hilary and Tom, about how their meetings went. But before we do that, are you able to give us a general overview of what's gone on across the network since then? I think collaboration groups have been lighting up. It's been really, really busy. So I've been amazed at the level of activity. Um, To give you a couple of examples, in science, they're well underway to analysing data. So they're looking at results data in a longitudinal perspective. They're looking at specific IAs and papers already. And what they're starting to do is, I suppose, pull down some of the barriers that might have existed between schools and allowing people to genuinely and critically peer review one another's work. Um, Another example would be in the humanities where I can see people are starting to do skills mapping where they're looking back at each other's CVs and working out where you can best be deployed. So most groups did the problem identification method that was actually suggested by EBE and now they've they've reached their kind of priorities. You're starting to see these kind of projects come forward like the data analysis or the skills mapping. Um, more broadly speaking, we've also got you know, outdoor education are working on a, a strategic plan for the whole group. They're working on how they could incorporate sustainability and um, SDGs. So it's very, very focused work and lots of output very quickly. Wow. So SDGs being the Sustainable Development Goals, is that right? Exactly. Yes. OK, exactly. cool. So lots going on um, and it sounds like people are off to a good start then. They really are. And I, I think we did have a, a mixed start. I think it's fair to say. I think we've got lots of different issues that we were ironing out, like the the perennial IT issues and those yeah. types of things. But also people understanding what collaboration is and, and what meaningful part they can play in this, given that it's outside their typical team. So I think people are starting to understand that. And 
I saw a huge amount of reflection from collaboration leads in terms of how they would go back to that team and motivate them and invigorate them. So I think there's lots of different discussions going on and also peer to peer support for collaboration leads who maybe need a different idea to take back to their group and sharing of effective practice. Yeah, and I think it's it's always been the case, hasn't it, that we or you didn't expect that from meeting one, everyone would identify lots of things um, that were really innovative and they'd be they'd be off and working on it straight away. It's as you said, there's some people that are working out well what what do we what does collaboration mean for us and 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 will take a little bit longer to work things out. And actually, that's a really good point that leads us nicely actually to some of the things that Dylan William will say later on in the podcast where he just gives us a little word of caution around collaboration and collaboration for the sake of it. So that um, segues quite nicely. Expertly done. Thank you, Sean. Thank you. Hi, Hilary. Hello. Hilary, when we last spoke, you were preparing for your first online history collaboration group meeting with colleagues based in schools all over the place, all over Southeast Asia. Um, Can you remind us what you had planned and then let us know if it went to plan? Yeah, so our initial plan was to kind of introduce like the vision um, and we were going to talk a little bit about the research behind what we were doing um, and then basically just kind of go through, introduce everyone and kind of basically find out what people were interested in based on our survey results. Um, So we put them kind of into a PowerPoint slide and then kind of discussed them. Um, In terms of how it went, um, it was really great. So we had uh, we didn't have everybody on the call because there were a few kind of communication difficulties, crossed wires, people not being able to get to the right meeting type thing. So that's definitely something to focus on for next time. Um, But the people who we did have there, um, it was really useful to see that we shared quite a lot of common kind of challenges and things we wanted to work on. Um, One of the big things we talked about was uh, the difficulties of COVID, obviously, um, but it was interesting to hear the different situations. Like some people are on completely e-learning, some people are on blended learning. We're back full time in Singapore. Um, So it's kind of useful to hear how people are adapting to that and kind of share experiences, I guess. Uh, Talk us through the survey. What, What questions did you ask people and what sort of responses did you get? Um, So we mostly asked um, things about what were the biggest challenges people were facing and what were the things that they would be interested in using the group for. Um, And it was quite interesting that a lot of people wanted to use it for sharing quite practical things. So sharing Mm -hmm. like resources or if people had found useful websites or if people had found uh, any kind of useful sort of things you could take into the classroom straight away was definitely a theme that came out of it. Um, And also that people were kind of hoping that it would be a bit of a sort of a sounding board. So if you had ideas that there would be other history teachers out there who you could share your ideas and see what they felt about it. Um, so that was quite good that everyone was kind of agreed on that. Um, one thing people were a little bit not so agreed on was whether we wanted to do like one big project for the year or whether we wanted mm. kind of smaller piecemeal type things. Um, and it was pretty much split 50-50. So for the moment, we're kind of going along the lines of smaller things and then see if that naturally develops into one kind of bigger theme for the year. Yeah, I think, well, it sounds like that could be an easier starting point, especially for a new group. You kind of look and some quick wins might be a good thing anyway. OK, let's yeah. share some stuff um, that's going to help each other out. And then maybe after that sort of initial phase, you might move towards um, working on something that you all want to get better at. Um, I mean, that feels probably a little bit harder to work on as a remote group, but 
Um, certainly something that came up in conversation um, when I spoke to Dylan William was, you know, um, the different ways that you can work together as a group. You know, if it's an admin type thing, then, you know, is it worth spending time as, as, as a group? Um, if it's all something you, you all want to get better at, then, you know, how, how can you do that as a group? And that's perhaps where the most impact is. Um, but it's a, definitely a journey, isn't it? And, you know, you've just got to come together to start with and, and go from there. Yeah, exactly. And like we've set up a spreadsheet already so that people can put in what different courses they're doing. Like, you know, how many years is your key stage three? Are you doing IB or A levels like that kind of thing? So we can immediately see if there's areas where we already overlap. And that's kind of a useful starting point. But like you said, I mean, it's it's hard to think of a big project from nothing. So it would be more useful to start with those smaller building blocks and then see if there's something like we were kind of talking about diversity already. And we were saying that a lot of us are thinking about how we can diversify the history that we teach our children and that might be something that would come out of these different kind of practical resource sharing ideas i guess yeah that sounds good and that that's spreadsheet although spreadsheets aren't necessarily exciting depending <laughs> on what you like um you know that's a really good sort of useful uh, key isn't it to see okay who within the group have i got some sort of common ground with in terms of how we work or what we work on that yeah. sounds good yeah definitely. okay so what's that was just the first meeting. Um, what's next? Yeah, so the next step essentially is once we've figured out where all the kind of areas of overlap are, um, we're hoping that the next meeting will use to kind of share any resources that we can as quickly as possible. So anyone who has kind of links to quizzes and things like that, um, that we can just share straight away and see what kind of lies between them. And then hopefully we can come up with a sort of bigger plan for how we're going to share things between the meetings um, because we were talking about the idea of like it's all great to have this meeting where we all kind of share our ideas and we feel really inspired but mm. if nothing happens between the meetings it can feel a bit random so trying to find a way to feel like it continues between them I think that's kind of the next step for us to focus on. Okay um, one of the things I'm just remembering actually that I think Dylan Williams said and if I'm remembering it correctly was um, one thing where a group could be particularly effective in a subject is is trying to write sort of quiz questions um yeah. you know or, or formative assessment questions as a group and that could be done much more easily or more effectively rather than just one person by themselves um and that's just something that that he sort of happened to highlight when i spoke to him so yeah who knows where it will go but um thank you very much for the update and we'll probably be be speaking to you again in the next episode yeah, I'll speak to you soon. Hello again, Tom. Hi, Jamie. Tom, when we last spoke, you were preparing for your first online science collaboration group meetings with colleagues based all over the place um, in Southeast Asia. So, Tom, did you get off to a good start? How did the meetings go? So my role as the as the lead for science, um, I'm actually supervising three separate science groups um, and I can give you an update on how their meetings went, if you like. Yeah, brilliant. Um, so I, as we spoke about last time, I think in all three cases, the, the really key thing um, that, that they wanted to achieve was to set up a culture of effective collaboration and then move on to identifying through any problems that could be addressed through the group. Uh, and to that end, all of them wanted to capture a sense of what their, the group members thought before the first meeting, um, which is a really good idea. And uh, there is the two groups did a pre-survey um, through, I think, Microsoft Forms. Uh, okay. One group decided to do it as a, a shared, um, yeah, shared Excel document, yeah. which I thought was interesting because it meant that 
as people were reflecting or putting in their responses to questions such as, you know, what's interested you in joining the group and you know, yeah. what problems are you facing in your school? Um, I think what was interesting is that they were already seeing different people's responses. Uh, yeah. Given that we've got quite a, you know, there is a limited amount of time that we have provided for these these collaboration groups and we want to make them effective. I thought that was quite an interesting way to get people yeah. ready about the needs of other people in the group before they entered the first meeting yeah it got the conversation started if you like just in, in a written format yeah yeah um and then i think you know that what, what they then did subsequently in the meeting after the you know the some icebreakers is uh split off into into just pairs to discuss what they put into that survey uh and again i think that was a very skilled move in terms of getting people confident in sharing their ideas to someone who they've not met um yeah getting that uh, getting that early before then moving into bigger groups moving into a four identifying from what from that four what they felt the key um, agenda item should be and then bringing it back to the main group uh, I thought that was quite a nice um, a nice yeah. way to, to develop confidence in the collaboration nice and early so have the groups um, the three groups that you're you're kind of supporting working across um, have they yet decided on the thing that they're going to work on, what what kind of came out of those meetings? So I think the leads had a really a really challenging job, um, which I if I handled really well, um, which was to be really flexible. You know, be hosting the meeting, and at the same yeah. time, as, as as has been discussed, there isn't a framework that we're we're, we're working from. You know, it's it's been developed as we go, yeah. um, and so you know there there were decisions being made during the meeting. So for example, one group has has split up into um, an IB focus and an IGCSE focus and and um, split into two subgroups during the meeting. Um, another group, uh, it was it was really all about that problem identification. And I think they were democratically voting, um, having having pitched their ideas, democratically voting on what they should focus on. Um, okay. I think the I think the big thing that um, has been decided is really that we we still don't know exactly what the focus should be. And that's that's good in my eyes. Um, there's a range of of things that could be achieved in these collaboration groups from something as simple as do we have a repository for for good resources you know how, yeah. how do you teach that topic in biology um yeah. and that's creating that 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 uh that that place to store these things across the group um but then of course you know i, I think the goal for, for for everyone involved is to, to is to try and do something a little bit more ambitious as well in terms of um perhaps an element of of action research in terms of developing yeah new resources which would be more effective than the previous um so i think i think there's still quite a lot of um uh parallel goals that people are working towards in these groups at the moment yeah i think it's interesting so i mean i've only spoken to what um, yourself and, and hillary but it does sound like there's kind of a, a, a natural kind of tendency to go for a, a sharing kind of task you know a repository type thing where you can get a quick win you immediately get some benefit from seeing other people's resources, yeah. but with a view then to doing something bigger and meatier once they've started working together and things have settled down. Yeah, exactly. I think that's completely right. Um, as much as we, you know, spoke about some some really ambitious ideas, yeah. Um, fundamentally, having having a good set of varied resources to hand is is exceptionally useful for whatever level you're teaching at. Um, and I mean, I know one group is kind of marrying these two ideas by um, uh, creating a, a, a resource bank for the internal assessment um, at the IB yeah. 
uh, level, which is which is a really challenging task for students. They've got to come up with their own research question and design a methodology which allow them to test it, do the whole experiments, write it up as a scientific report. And something that students find very challenging, uh, and we as teachers always, um, you know, there's always debates on how best to deliver that that piece. Yeah. Of so they're collecting lots of different, um, uh, you know, different examples of of student work, yeah. um, of the way that we're delivering lessons, with a view to then analysing them and considering what could be developed collaboratively. Um, and another group cool. um, I'm trying to collect some data for in terms of the sort of the granular uh, marks for the different sections of the IA across the whole group. So we can try and identify, you know, is, if, if, for example, one one school is uh, perhaps slightly underperforming relative to another on the internal assessments, mm. uh, is it actually just simply the evaluations are a little bit worse? Is that, yeah. is it, could we could we draw this out from the data um, and then develop stuff that would address that specific skill? Um, so, again, it's, it's problem identification at this point. Um, yeah, because I think uh, you spoke to, to uh, John Hattie earlier. Um, yeah. For, for that collective uh, teacher efficacy to be to be. Yeah. Effective. We've got to have the, the belief that it's going to make a difference, but it can't just be us us having too much self-confidence it's got to be based on, on on some data and so i think all the groups are quite keen to collect that data at the start so that at the end of the process we'll be able to identify if that if these collaboration groups have been effective and i think that would really set us up for, for future years yeah exactly so what john hattie said was no know thy impact i think is he's saying so yeah um it sounds like you're on the right track with that so thank you very much, Tom, for giving us an update, and I'm sure we'll speak to you again soon. No worries. Thanks, Jamie. Hi, John. Hi, Jamie. John, you and your team have presented collective teacher efficacy as the number one influence related to student achievement, and that's quantified by an effect size. And just to clarify here, for anyone who might not be familiar with it, effect size is a way of quantifying the effectiveness of a particular intervention relative to some sort of comparison. So by this measure, your research suggests that the effect of collective teacher efficacy, and I'm going to start saying CTE now, is two times bigger than that of feedback, and almost three times bigger than that, uh, the effect of classroom management. So it seems hugely important, and it could be relevant to the listeners of this podcast series on collaboration. So can you please give us a definition of CTE and tell us a bit about it? Sure, and let, let me clarify, you call it um, the, the number one, but we're going to be a little careful there because it's a common element underlying most of the things at the top, which makes it so important. It's not a thing by itself. It underlies many of the things, and certainly okay. as I'm sure we're talking about it, feedback's part of that. But it, um, it means when the group of educators in the school, and I'm including the teaching aides, the teachers, the school leaders, when they come together, work together to evaluate their impact collectively. And so you might want to call it um, collective teacher efficacy, CTE, but I want to clarify because one of my worries here, Jamie, is people are going to misunderstand it and think mm -hmm. it's just getting together and talking. Mm -hmm. It's teacher collective efficacy about their impact. And that's the key part of the phrase. It's not about talking about resources. It's not talking about... Um, whether kids are good or bad or not, it's the impact of the teachers. And so when teachers work together, and what's stunning and I think exciting about it is that when teachers work together, 
to clarify their impact, clarify their expectations, kids are the biggest beneficiaries. And I just think that's kind of exciting. Yeah, okay. So, I mean, that's almost sort of started to clarify something that I was going to ask you about because it feels like something of a paradox. You know, you might only believe in something when you see the evidence and then it starts to make you think it's possible rather than just believing is going to make something happen. So could you sort of go into that aspect of it, please? Yeah, like, surprise, surprise, teachers are humans. And all us humans, um, we walk into a classroom and we have perceptions of what's happening in that classroom. Someone else walks in that classroom, they see different things. The classroom didn't change. The perceptions change. And mm. there's no such thing as immaculate perception. And it's as we get together to talk about what our impressions are, what our judgments are, what our evaluations are, cross-checked with how other people see the classroom. It's the same when we look at test information or information from an assignment. It's We all see it in slightly different ways. And so how do we collectively check to see whether how we're seeing it is actually helping and assisting the student to move forward? Mm. And it's like when you look at, for, let's go to the extreme of test scores. The score is not what matters. It's the interpretation of it. So, yeah. Jamie, when you see that test score, how do you interpret it? How do I interpret it? And listening to that kind of triangulation of how other educators are looking at that child, looking at that progress, helps the teacher take off some of their biases. And let me tell you, my bias right up front, I have an incredibly strong confirmation bias. I see good on lots of things. Mm. And sometimes that means I'm not looking at what kids don't know. I'm looking, for instance, at the kids that are succeeding and using that as evidence that I'm a great teacher. What about the kids that are not succeeding? And so how do you look at those bias? And that's one of the purposes of the teacher collective efficacy. But it's, it's also having a, a very clear understanding of what your expectations are of your students. Like I work in the language of um, what's a year's growth for a, a year's input. Yeah. And if I have a very small notion of what a year's growth is and you have a very large notion, both of us will be stunningly successful, sadly for my kids and wonderful for your kids. So how as teachers do we get together to work out what our expectations are? Mm. And let me give you an example to set the scene. Uh, I'm going to take a kid's work um, one day, and then I'm going to take another sample of his work, say, um, 10 or 12 weeks later. I'm going to come to the staff meeting, and I'm going to put it on the table, and we're going to have a discussion about whether that is evidence of 10 weeks' growth. Now, it's a very, very challenging question because it goes to the heart of your and my concept of what it means mm -hmm. to be a teacher and have impact. And sometimes, correctly, some teachers will say, well, actually, the kid hasn't grown at all. And you can see how it's a very challenging conversation. So you need a lot mm. of trust to do this. But it is starting to bring out um, across a collective of teachers what they mean by expectations, what they mean by growth. And you mm. can start to see how the kids are the beneficiaries. Okay, so you've you've started to give us some examples there, which is which is really helpful. Is is this something that schools can change and and how? I mean, just as you're talking there, it I was starting to think, is this about, does this fit quite nicely into conversations around curriculum and assessment and, and planning those activities? Not so much. No. I, I think that nothing wrong with teachers getting together to plan, but sometimes they plan without having a good understanding and a diagnosis of what's happening in a particular class. 
And so if they plan generically for all kids, we know that it's just like a, a, a light shower. It sprinkles on a lot of kids that misses others. That's yeah. okay, but that's not what I'm talking about. It's more the diagnosis, which then leads to the intervention and the evaluation of the intervention. Because I think if you start telling teachers how to teach, you're in a really troubling situation. We, we, we've got to have a certain amount of trust in the autonomy of how they teach. Mm-hmm. I want, however, to look at the impact of that teaching. That's why I make a very strong claim. I don't care less how anyone in England teaches. And I think that discussion has consumed us far too wrong in the wrong direction. I don't care how you teach. I care about your impact. And that's the focus of the collective advocacy. Mm, okay. So what what can schools, can schools change this? Or how oh, how might this? Yeah. Okay. On the well, assumption that kids come to school and go through um, an exposure to professional learning and it improves them. And I don't see why that doesn't apply to teachers as well. And, and you know, our work over the last five or 10 years has been very much building that collective advocacy across the school um, so that all teachers have this very strong belief about their impact on kids. Um, so yes, it can be taught. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so if in a school, so you're, you're the, the school leader, I'm, I'm one of your middle leaders, kind of how does this manifest itself? This is you sort of from a leadership position trying to build this culture and this kind of practice. How, how do you see that building? Well, there's a certain amount of trust that needs to be built up front. Like take the example I used before of a teacher bringing along two pieces of kids work and having a discussion about growth. Mm. You, you can't do that in a vacuum and some staff rooms are not safe havens to talk about these things. Mm. Probably the most anal study I've ever done is measured in minutes what teachers talk about in morning tea, lunchtime, and, uh, and professional learning sessions. And it's dominated by kids, by curriculum, um, by assessments, and by kicking footballs. One minute a month they talk about teaching and even less about the impact of it. Yeah. And that's what I want to turn on its head. Um, there's good reason we don't talk about the impact. Jamie, I respect that you teach differently from me. And what I'm saying to you loud and clear don't you dare touch me. And that, that unfortunately what happens. But let me be positive here. If you've been teaching 10 years and you're a great teacher in terms of the impact you're having on kids, you probably did that yourself. Schools are very isolating places in terms mm. of that kind of learning. And this is what we want to change. So that in a school, any teacher can walk into another teacher's class and no one notices. And I'm very keen that they do this because I want to help teachers see their impact. I don't want to, I never, I think it's a sin to go into another teacher's class and watch them teach. That's not what I'm talking about. It's helping them see the impact. And then I might want to come to you, Jamie, and say, look, I'm having difficulties with this kid. He's not being turned on to learning, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. What I want you to do is to stand in my shoes and understand how I'm seeing the world before you rush into judgment and give me your 13 solutions. And that's the key part here. I think there are three major skills involved. One is you've got to have the skills to contribute to a group discussion. Second, you've got to have the confidence to contribute to a group discussion. And the third, and the one that's the hardest for me, is you've got to have the confidence that in that group, they can come up with a better answer than you can. And that's why it's hard to get collective efficacy working to then get that incredible effect size. And so some, like I'm sure you know some teachers who are very good in the classroom who are quite socially not so good in the staff room. Yeah. Many of them come to the staff room, fold their arms, have their cup of tea, and just want to go back to their class, close the door, and indulge in their passion. That's not what we're talking about. 
So this is where leadership is so important to make sure that everyone contributes, make sure there's lots of turn taking, make sure that you demonstrate before you come up with a judgment that you have understood what the person is saying, what the context is, what the evidence is. And that's real skilled leadership. And the good news is there's some stunningly good leaders who can do this. I think I've heard you was quoted saying before, uh, know, know thy impact or, or, or something to that effect. And so how, how do we know that? And when we recognise that uh, the effectiveness of, of a teacher, can we distill that down to kind of what is particularly effective? Have you got anything that you might be able to help us yeah. with there? Uh, the reason, Jamie, that I'd say know thy impact is that in the early days when people read my work, they looked at the top of the chart and said, we're going to do those things, tick, tick, tick. And the ones at the bottom, we're not going to do it. And that was, if I made that mistake, I regret it. That's not what I meant. I talk in terms of probabilities. If you do these things, they're high probabilities. Mm. And the reason know thy impact come is in the classroom, in the school, I want you to focus on your impact. Yeah, I want you to choose high probability interventions, but I want to focus. And I think there are three major sources of information that, that teachers use to know their impact. One is the test scores, the assignments. The second is their observations as they walk around the class. And the third is the student voice. Like if kids don't think they're learning, they're probably not. If kids are confused, they probably are confused. So how do you bring those three things together? And then where collective efficacy comes in is how do you get other people to look at that same kind of evidence from those three sources and help in terms of the interpretations? Mm. And so that's kind of the key notion. But the other part of Know Thy Impact is it begs the question, like you, Jamie, as a teacher, what do you mean by impact? And heaven help me, Jamie, if you think impact is just kids on test scores and maths and reading, I think we've got a, a pretty boring classroom. Mm. And so I want a broader notion. I want to turn kids on to learning. I want them to have strategies of learning. I want to have to see them in the joy and the curiosity of learning. And yes, I make no apology. I do want to improve their scores and their performance in the maths and reading and music and phys ed, et cetera. And so that discussion, but the key, key one in all that is this notion of growth um, and expectations. Like Christian Ruby Davies' work has shown if teachers have very low expectations for kids. They're very successful for all their kids. And that's yes. what needs to be contested in, this, in the collective efficacy groups. Okay, so this, if, if you were, would you give this a different name if you were naming this out of interest? Um, well, I, I do worry that collective efficacy is going to be like professional learning communities that just getting people together. And that's not what Richter Four meant when he coined the notion of professional learning communities, and it certainly wasn't what Albert Bandura suggested. Uh, if collective efficacy is just growth mindset for adults yeah. or getting together and, and chatting. Um, I actually haven't thought about a better name. That's probably a good idea. But I certainly, as I said before, that collective teacher efficacy about their impact. Maybe okay. that's something that uh, your listeners can come up with a better name for us. Yeah, competition answers on a postcard. Okay, I've got one more one more question for you, or is it a question? I don't know. It hasn't come out of my mouth yet. So collaboration is kind of a key element of this, isn't it? But it's a very specific type of collaboration with a very specific focus. Is that what you're saying? And it's all about impact, yeah, and growth. Okay. Well, that, John, I think will be very helpful and will clarify a few things for the people listening to this podcast and those who are working 
in the Dulwich collaboration groups. So thank you very much for your time. Pleasure, Jamie. Great talking to you. Dylan, I spoke with John Hattie earlier about collective teacher efficacy. And before we talk more broadly about collaboration, I'd be really interested in your thoughts on the topic of collective teacher efficacy, CTE. Is it a characteristic of strategies for improvement or a thing in and of itself that schools can or should attend to? I think schools should attend to it, but only as an index of other things. So let's take a step back. Uh, efficacy is an improvement on the idea of self-esteem developed by Albert Bandura. The idea of efficacy is that you believe you can carry through your plans to fruition. So teacher efficacy is whether teachers believe they can get on and do their jobs and have students learn. So collective teacher efficacy is the average of that across a school. The idea is that when teacher collective efficacy is high, teachers in a school believe that all students can learn, that they have the resources they need, that they're supported. And so high levels of teacher collective efficacy are definitely a good thing to have. Mm. The question is whether you can influence it directly. And so I think one of the problems with John Hattie's approach to effect sizes is that he doesn't distinguish between things that are manipulable and things that are just correlations. So in his own work on visible learning, uh, he relies very heavily on one uh, master's dissertation, a PhD dissertation, I think, which did a, a review of the research on teacher collective efficacy. And not one of those was an experimental manipulation. All of them were just looking at correlations. So what they found is that in schools with high student achievement, you find high levels of teacher collective efficacy. But it's not at all clear that it's the high teacher collective efficacy improvement. It could be that, in fact, it's high levels of student achievement that causes <clears throat> collective efficacy. In schools full of highly motivated, high achieving students, teachers feel they can get on with their jobs. So I think we have to be very careful when we press a correlation into service as what John Hattie calls an influence or what other people call an effect size. And I think there's a real problem here. John Hattie himself says that one year's learning is 0.4 standard deviations on average. If we take that 1.6 standard deviation effect size that he quotes for teacher collective efficacy seriously, that means that with high teacher collective efficacy, in one year, students are going to make five years progress. And that is simply not credible. So mm -hmm. anybody who quotes this effect size is detached from reality. There's just no basis for it. It's not an experimental result. It's just a correlation. We don't know the direction of causality. And the evidence is strongly that it's in the opposite direction to which people normally claim. And therefore, I think that the best thing to do is for leaders to look at teacher collective efficacy as an index of how well other reforms are moving. Because if your teachers don't feel they can do their jobs, if they feel that students can't learn in this particular school, then that's a problem. But it's an index. It's not a yeah. thing that you would like to manipulate. Yeah, got it. it did, I mean, when I first sort of came across it, it does feel like something of a paradox. You know, it's a bit chicken and egg as well, isn't it? You know, like you say, it's, there's a correlation. Um, okay, so on to collaboration more broadly. When I was thinking of people to speak to about collaboration, I thought of you and your work with teacher learning communities, and I reached out to you, and you had a few words of caution for me in terms of conflating ideas, and you warned of collaboration for the sake of it. In fact, you weren't sure whether there was something that you wanted to say on the topic of collaboration, but actually those words of caution seem like good advice to me. 
I haven't really asked a question here, so I'm hoping you're just going to launch into an answer anyway. Well, yes, I can certainly do that, Jamie. I think the important point is that collaboration can be effective, but it isn't a passeer. So we should be very careful about what it is we want to achieve. So in the research on learning, for example, there's a distinction between cooperative learning and collaborative learning. And these lines aren't drawn consistently. But in higher education, collaborative learning is used to describe the learning that people do when they, between them, set their goals. And cooperative learning is described for a process whereby the teacher sets the goals and students work cooperatively to achieve those goals. But in both of those cases, the goal is the learning of individual members. Whereas in the business world, for example, the reason that collaboration is valued when it is valued is because they want a better solution. The idea is that a group of people might be able to come up with a better idea than any one of them could come up with individually. So I think at the start of this process, we have to be very clear. Are we interested in learning or are we interested in an, in an output? Because mm -hmm. in cooperative learning, it's a disaster if one person does all the project work for the whole group. But in the business world, if one person comes up with a brilliant solution that the others couldn't have managed to come up with, that's okay. So I think there's often um, a lack of understanding of, of the goals of the process. You know, and you have to be really clear, what are your goals for this process? The second thing to realize is that collaborative or cooperative learning for teachers, teacher professional development cooperatively, entails a massive increase in staff time. And so the question is, is it worth it? So let's take something that I've recommended, which is the teachers work collaboratively to develop good questions. Now, our own experience suggests that when two teachers work together on this, the questions they come up with are better than one teacher mm. or his own. But I'm not at all convinced that four teachers working on the same question would be much better. And therefore, if you've got four teachers, it might be better for them to work in pairs and come up with questions separately because then you get twice as many questions. So you've got to take into account the opportunity cost. And a lot of what passes for a teacher collaboration or teacher cooperation or group work, teachers working together in, in communities, actually is incredibly inefficient because it doesn't achieve more than could be achieved by people working separately or in smaller groups. So you've always got to take into account the opportunity cost. The other thing is people throw around this phrase, professional learning communities. And there's nothing good about a professional learning community. I mean, the term community is adopted from the work of Jean Lave and Etienne Wenger on uh, apprenticeships and what they call communities of practice, where people are inducted into a new community. But the important point is, in Jean Lave and Etienne Wenger's work, there's nothing that defines that community as being a good community. It could be actually a community that's achieving something for nefarious ends. So learning how to be a pickpocket, for example, you might be enculturated into a professional learning community of pickpockets. Yeah. And uh, you know, the, the processes that Leib and Wenger describe would apply equally well, this type of thing they call legitimate peripheral participation. And you become uh, enculturated into the norms of that community. So I think we have to be very careful to say that community is a good thing. It can be good, it can be bad. Now, professional, I mean, I think I would define professional as being um, defined by decision-making under uncertainty and um, some kind of mutual regard. Uh, Wenger actually helps define this by saying 
that one of the definitions of community is that you you get in my business and I get in your business. Right. We're all working separately, and I, I feel able to say something to you if you haven't done something particularly sensible. And then, of course, the idea that they're learning. But the problem is that a professional learning community could be better at incorporating learning styles into their teaching, which has no benefit for students as far as we can tell. So the idea that professional learning communities are good is, I think, questionable. They can be, but they can be uh, working on things that don't help students. So we often get seduced by this. And then, of course, uh, I think it's important to realize that groups can make decisions that are really quite silly. So you know, there's a famous saying, none of us is as smart as all of us. But it's also true that none, is, none of us is stupid as all of us. So there's a, a well-known phenomenon called the risky shift and in, in group dynamics. And a group can agree to something that none of the individual group members would have agreed to on their own. But <laughs> the fact that other people agree with it makes them feel comfortable about the decision. And groups can come up with very stupid decisions. So I think we have to be aware that there's nothing inherently good in collaborative learning. It can be good, especially when the problems are complex. You get this rare or rather nice thing that John Sweller talks about in cognitive load theory, which is that when you've got a complex problem with multiple constraints in a group, you can have different people remembering to take into account different constraints. So the collective working memory, if you like, of the group becomes larger than any individual's working memory. So that when somebody says, here's a solution, ah, but you've forgotten about that, so another member, that could lead to better solutions. But I think we have to be very careful about saying that having teachers work collaboratively is good, it's often a waste of time, they can actually work on things that don't help students. And so this is a process that is in search of a goal, I think. And that's why in my own work, I've talked about content then process. So first decide what you want to help teachers get better at and then figure out what is the best way to get them better at that. And that's why we came up with this idea of teacher learning communities, specifically to help teachers get better at changing their habits of classroom formative assessment. And we now have empirical evidence from randomized control trials that shows that's a good thing. But I don't know whether this process is any good for anything else, because it's not designed to do anything else. Mm. So for me, I think we have to start out with what do we want teachers to get better at? And if you've decided that teachers' content knowledge isn't good enough, then don't have professional learning communities. Send them to a university to be taught this stuff by an expert. And so you know, this idea of content, then process. Start out with what you want to help teachers get better at and then figure out the best processes that will get you there, I think is a far safer recipe for improving teacher effectiveness than just say, wouldn't it be great if teachers met together collaboratively? Yeah. Okay, thank you, Dylan. And I suppose there, when you draw, you drew on uh, sort of parallels, analogies to the business world, there is within education, the sort of the administration side of things, there could be some benefits there in terms of admin and efficiencies made there by people coming together within a sub subject group or whatever it might be? There might be, but that's an empirical question. Uh, timetabling, yeah. for example, I've rarely seen timetabling work well when done by committee. You know, yeah. that school, secondary school timetabling is often best done by one smart person preparing for a few months and then, you know, uh, wrapping their head in a cold towel. Yeah. <laughs> it's just loading the problem into their brain 
at one time and just getting on with it. So, I, as I said, you know, don't forget that when you've got 10 people in a group working together, you've increased the cost of that, of that solution tenfold. And is it really worth that extra effort? And just be, be cautious about that. So I'm not saying collaboration is bad. I'm just saying that regarding it as an unqualified good is a mistake and results in a huge waste of teachers' time. Well, I think that's that's all good advice in terms of framed as caution, and um, I think in the sort of the spirit of this podcast series and 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 the schools that are working together on collaboration, um, they'll be very welcome to hear it as well. So, thank you very much for your time, Dylan. Well, that's it for another episode of the Evidence Based Education podcast. Thank you to our guests, Sean, Hilary, Tom, John, and Dylan, and most of all, thank you for listening.